Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. Puzzling words crop up regularly in discussions about China these days. Decoupling and de-risking. They're drawn from the idea that China is an autocracy, which has a tendency to bully or coerce other countries. The leaders of a number of nations say the principal goal is to manage the relationship with China in such a way as to reduce this risk. The thinking goes that this is a more realistic approach than trying to break entirely out of the relationship, which would anyway be virtually impossible given China's size and importance. Well, in my view, the language being used about China reveals a lot about the international political mood, but the terms can be difficult to grasp. So on today's podcast, I'm pleased to welcome back an expert who's well-placed to help us understand the debate. He's James Lawrenson, Director of the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology in Sydney. James, thanks for joining me again. Great to be with you, Duncan. Now, let's start with the word decoupling. We hear it all the time. You actually shared with me an academic paper that you're working on, which starts with a striking quote from the executive director of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. The man's name is Peter Jennings, and he says he wants the government in Canberra to advance every possible measure to reduce economic dependence on China. That sounds to me like a demand for decoupling. Can you explain why Mr Jennings takes such a view? The basic proposition is that when a country develops a significant trade exposure to China, in the view of someone like Peter Jennings, this gives Beijing leverage to coerce that trading partner and undermine their sovereignty You know, by threatening or, or actually cutting off. Um, foreign exporters' access to the Chinese market or disrupting other countries' supply chains. Um, you know, overseas capitals will make political choices out of deference to Beijing's interests rather than their own. Now, I agree, it sounds a lot like a call to decoupling to me too, but out of, to be a bit fair to Peter Jennings, he might say that he was referring to reducing dependence on China, right? Dependence on China, and not all trade involves a dependence. Well, okay, but my own research, which looks at the Australia-China trade relationship, concludes that despite being the most China-exposed economy amongst all OECD countries, the areas, the goods and services where Australia is actually dependent on China are in fact very few. More often there's a mutual interdependence. Think iron ore. So yes, the majority of our iron ore goes to China, but China's most of China's imports of iron ore come from Australia. Ditto when it comes to lithium or, or, or wool. Um, and in other cases, you know, our first best option may be to trade with China, but that doesn't mean it's our only option. Um, and certainly over the last few years, we've seen examples of where China cut off access to its markets um, and Australian exporters basically shrugged their shoulders because um, they had other options. Oh, it's interesting you're drawing a distinction between dependence and interdependence there, James. So going back to what I was talking about at the start, do you think it's possible for countries to decouple from China, given its size and importance? The short answer is no. China's economy is just too big, but just as importantly, it's too internationally integrated. I don't think this is as appreciated as it should be. Look at China's trade to GDP ratio. That stands at about 37%. 
that's actually 12 percentage points higher than it is in the United States. So the Chinese economy is more internationally integrated in terms of its trade connections than the United States economy is. Last year, China's share of global goods trade stood at 12.5% of the total. Um, that compared with just 10.8% for the United States. Now, other countries don't trade with China out of charity, right? They do it because it presents the best deal. And finally, there's an increasing number of areas where China produces goods that embody the world's best technology. I mean, I think clean energy supply chains, like those for electric vehicles, are a good example of this. Um, and so if you don't trade with China, okay, but you'll have to satisfy yourself um, with inferior stuff. Well, I said that we would talk about two words today. One was decoupling, the other one is de-risking. The European Commission President, Ursula von der Leyen, is a prominent user of that term. I've heard her say that it's neither viable nor in Europe's interest to decouple from China. Instead, she calls for de-risking. What do you think she means by that? Yeah, it relates to this idea that cutting off trade with China is not realistic or desirable, but we don't want trade exposures that give Beijing leverage to weaponize trade and threaten our sovereign decision making. And so we, what we might want to do is de-risk by, for example, having multiple markets for our exports and multiple suppliers of imports and, and so on. Now, look, that's a pretty common sense aspiration. Um, I think everyone can agree on that. The challenge is, is that the real world has a habit of pushing back. Um, I remember in 2014, then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton visited Australia and warned Australians about putting all of our eggs in the China basket. Now, Malcolm Turnbull, who went on to become Prime Minister, responded that we would love to sell vast quantities of iron ore to the United States, but it's never shown any interest in buying. You know, updating that to a more contemporary context, in 2020, uh, more than 90% of Australian rock lobster exports went to China. But guess what? China accounted for more than 90% of global rock lobster imports um, in total. Or right now, now, more than 90% of Australian exports of raw lithium go to China. Well, that's not a decision that's naive to risk. It simply reflects the fact that China is the global hub of clean energy supply chain. So look, ultimately, trade is undertaken by the private sector, uh, businesses and households, and is driven by fundamental economic drivers, you know, comp production complementarities, purchasing power, um, not what a politician or a bureaucrat sitting in a capital might wish for. Look, the good news is that despite common perceptions, businesses are pretty alive to all sorts of risks, including geopolitical risks, um, and that's because it's their money that's on the line. Now, there's a strong implication in all this, isn't there, that China's trade policies are unfair. Can you explain why they're seen that way? Well, I think China has to take responsibility for that uh, implication being drawn. Um, I mean, Beijing's really brought that upon itself. In 2020, for example, no one forced Beijing to take the actions it did against Australian exporters. Now, one thing I would add, and this does not absolve Beijing, but it is perfectly relevant context. And th that is that when it comes to the weaponization of trade, Beijing's not alone. <laughs> I mean, I remember a 2019 report written by the Center for New American Security, a Washington think tank, that began with this sentence. I've got it in front of me. Quote, 
Coercive economic measures have been a long-standing tool of American foreign policy, dating back to the early 19th century, close quote. It went on to say that it had become a, quote, central tool during the Trump administration. And of course, the Biden administration has only gone further in policy terms, um, including some extraordinary measures aimed at China last October that Australia's trade minister actually described as draconian. And when Washington's been challenged on such measures at the World Trade Organization and lost, its position has been to reject the ruling and state that it has no intention of coming into compliance. So look, Beijing has to take responsibility for its own choices, but I do think middle and smaller powers like Australia and perhaps the UK um, can quite reasonably grumble about the norms of great power behaviour set by the United States. I mean, China should be looked upon internationally as a bit of a rogue actor in this respect, but the truth is, it's not. Now, when we come to the issue of national security, I've noticed that when the Americans talk about de-risking, the focus is often on reducing Chinese dominance of vital supply chains. Can you say more about that? Yeah, it's interesting. When we talk about supply chains and the implications they have for national security, it is interesting to me that when Beijing disrupts trade, typically it doesn't target other countries' supply chains. What it does is cuts off access to its own market. Now, I think one of the reasons for that is that if Beijing weaponizes um, other countries' dependence on it for supply chains, that can actually backfire in a big way against Chinese interests over the long term. I mean, in 2010, for example, um, Japan viewed, assessed that uh, China was threatening to cut off its access to rare earth, uh, rare earths, which Japan was overwhelmingly reliant on China for. Now, in a very short space of time, Japan managed to cut its exposure to China from almost 100% to 60%, and then a few years later down to 50%. Um, so weaponizing supply chains is a, is a dangerous um, approach. And the other thing is it can also backfire in on China in terms of um, its own vulnerabilities. Um, you know, China is utterly dependent upon international markets for a whole bunch of goods. Um, so it's a pretty dangerous game to play, um, weaponizing supply chains. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have to worry about that in terms of our national security. But I also do think we need to have some sensitivity about an insecurity spiral developing. Um, we're worried about China weaponizing supply chains. China's worried about us weaponizing supply chains. In the end, you end up with a less interdependent world. And that's a world where conflict is more rather than less likely. Now, what do you think China's view is on all this? Is Xi Jinping concerned about the implications of being de-risked? Uh, no doubt. Uh, first of all, in terms of the direct economic costs, that is, you know, lower Chinese uh, exports to foreign markets. Uh, but then if the US and its allies have fewer connections to China, then Beijing would also be concerned that those countries would then have freer reign to exploit China's trade dependencies or, or have less to lose in the event of outright hostilities. And I mean, Xi Jinping's not paranoid here, right? I mean, last October, Washington did weaponize an asymmetric dependence um, China had with respect to advanced semiconductors. Um, in 2015, uh, President Obama asked Australia to stop selling iron ore to China. Now, we resisted at the time, uh, but we know from the recent uh, developments in the field of semiconductors, Washington's put a lot of pressure on countries like Japan, Korea and the Netherlands to support its uh, controls on semiconductors. Um, so, you know, we really do need to be cognizant here of um, an insecurity spiral developing. Um, far better that we uh, work to head that off rather than accept it or, or embrace it.
I've noticed that Xi Jinping often gives speeches in which he urges China not to become too dependent on foreign countries. He says he wants China to strive for self-reliance in certain key areas. So do you think Xi Jinping is actually advocating a kind of decoupling, but from the Chinese side? Yes, I think there's some truth to that statement. Um, but there's some caveats as well. Look, you can read dozens of op-eds in West, the Western press saying that we shouldn't feel at all bad about um, decoupling from China because China started decoupling from us first. A couple of things. First, whatever Xi Jinping might have said, don't forget to look at what's actually happened. I mean, the truth is, Today, China remains critically dependent on international markets for a whole raft of goods. China has been trying to uh, diversify away from Australian supplies of iron ore for more than a decade. It has failed miserably. Um, and that's even before talking about the overall backdrop of an international financial system that's utterly dominated by the US dollar. So the second thing is I don't think it is in our interest to accept a fait accompli. No one benefits from a less interdependent world. In other words, rather than you know begrudgingly accepting or embracing mutual a, a mutual decoupling or de-risking race, how about we channel our energies into processes that build trust and uh, reassurance? How about restoring the World Trade Organization um, as a mutually agreed upon independent arbiter of trade disputes as a means of heading off that insecurity spiral. So that's where I would prefer our policy focus was, um, was directed at. Well, thank you, James, for helping us by being our political encyclopedia today. <laughs> that was Professor James Lawrenson, Director of the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology in Sydney, Australia. This podcast is produced by the SOAS China Institute in London, and you can find out more about our courses on our website, soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here on the China in Context podcast team.